This is the audio from a recent Institute of Economic Affairs YouTube video. We've stripped the audio so that you can listen on the go. Political power of this kind has two crippling disabilities. The first is public choice problems. Uh, the fact that large-scale power machinery of any kind, particularly at a global level, is going to be captured by private interests who will use it to extract rents from the rest of us. I personally think the Apollo project was a disaster for space exploration. And that had we not had the, it had put back space exploration by about 20 to 30 years. Why? Because the Apollo project, like all government projects, put all its eggs in one basket. The point is that we do not have, despite what many people would think, anything close to an adequate replacement for fossil fuels at the moment. Steve, one of my colleagues here at the IEA, uh, he's a senior education fellow with us. Um, he spent 30 years teaching history at Manchester Metropolitan University. Uh, he's been a program officer at the Institute of Humane Studies, and he's the, he is the author of numerous books and think tank publications, including The Politics and Economics of Brexit, The Realignment of British Public Life. And I should say, I think one of the things Steve has become most known for in recent years is his theory of the realignment in politics, not just in Britain, uh, but around the world. And he has proved to be I would say in light of the new book, worryingly prescient uh, about the way things are going. Um, he also is the author of The Wealth Explosion, The Nature and Origins of Modernity. Um, so the book we're talking about tonight, as I said, Apocalypse Next, published by the IA a few weeks ago, and you can get copies at the back. Um, Steve, this is a fascinating book. I'm delighted that the IA was able to publish it. It's also quite a challenging book for classical liberals and libertarians, not just because it's uh, a kind of a different topic for us, but I think it also challenges the way we think about things like risk, about mm. the role of the state, um, even our optimism about technological progress and modernity mm. to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, so there's lots of stuff that I want to dig into in more detail, but I think we probably need to start with some of the basic concepts you're discussing here. So this is a book about global catastrophic risks. Yes. And I think it's important to be quite specific about what is and isn't a global catastrophic risk, mm. because it would be possible to read this book and think we need the government to protect us from everything under the sun. That's not what you're saying. What is the specific kind of problem you're, you're, you're dealing with here? Uh, okay, uh, I'm certainly not saying the government should protect us against everything under the sun, uh, or even some of the risks we're talking about in this book. Um, a global catastrophic risk is a possible event uh, which, were it to happen, would have effects which were both global, they would affect the entire planet, and also catastrophic. Now, what does catastrophic mean? Well, it doesn't just mean really bad. Uh, it means really things that fall into two big categories. Either the extinction or near extinction of the human species, or... Uh, the permanent uh, collapse of civilization, uh, the collapse of civilization with no realistic prospect of its ever recovering. So, so a whole lot of really bad things don't count as global catastrophic risks. So a nuclear war, say, between India and Pakistan would be a catastrophic event for the Indian subcontinent, but it would not be a global catastrophic risk because it would not affect the rest of the world. Uh, on the other hand, something like a conventional third world war uh, would be a global uh, disaster, but it wouldn't be a catastrophic one because it would not cause either human extinction or the complete collapse of civilization. At least hopefully not. Yeah, hopefully not, <laughs> yes. So global catastrophic risks are a very specific kind of 
uh, possible bad event. Uh, they're, they're much. They're not to be thought of as the kind of wider category of large events. So COVID, for example, was not a global catastrophic event. It was global, but it was not anywhere near catastrophic. And COVID actually was the genesis of this book, if I understand it correctly. You gave the IA's Hayek lecture about the history of pandemics. Yes. Um, and then our colleague Glyn asked you, like, this is fascinating. Would you like to expand on it into a whole book? Yes. Was this all in your head already or did you have to go and do some serious uh, research? It was A lot of it was in my head already because I've had an interest in this for quite some time through reading some of the authors who are very much associated with it, the people at the Centre for the Study of Catastrophic Risk at Cambridge University, the people at the Future of Humanity Institute in Oxford, people like Anders Sandberg and Toby Ord and so on. So I was already very interested in this. However, I did have to do a lot of research when I wrote the book. And in that research, I came across various kinds of possible events, GCRs, which I hadn't even considered mm. before. So uh, writing the book was uh, both a matter of like sorting out things I've been thinking about for a while, but also digging into things and discovering things I hadn't even uh, bothered to be worried about before. I think one of the most unsettling things in the book, and bear in mind, I read this on a long train journey with my three-year-old son asleep in my lap. And so I was a child here and a book of absolute horrors in the other hand. Um, you say the chances of a global global catastrophic risk occurring are increasing quite yes. significantly. Yes. Why is that? Well, there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, humanity has always lived under the shadow of possible events that could have wiped out all human beings. It very nearly happened 70,000 years ago when there was a super volcano eruption in Sumatra. And according to the paleoanthropologists, it reduced the number of human beings on the planet to less than 10,000. Uh, very few survived. So we've always had these risks, but the risks were A, natural, nothing we could do about them, and B, very low probability. Uh, I mean, a super volcano eruption, for example, is roughly a one, one in a million year event. So it's very, very, un, you know, it's a very low risk. What has happened more recently, though, is a number of things. One is we now have um, human activity, which is making natural risks more probable. So the way w things we are doing are making natural risks more likely to happen than they would otherwise be. Uh, pandemics are the classic example of that, which I did mention in my Hayek lecture. The way we produce meat these days, for example, is significantly increasing the risk of a serious natural pandemic. So that's one thing. Another thing is that a lot of new technologies have created totally novel risks, uh, which are catastrophic. The obvious one is nuclear weapons. Uh, before nuclear weapons were invented, the chance that a war, no matter how big, could destroy global civilization was you know, infinitesimal. It just didn't exist. But it, it's generally accepted. If we had a global nuclear war, let's say a Russian-American war or a Russian-Chinese war, uh, the it would probably destroy advanced civilization and the effects would be very, very hard to recover from. And then thirdly, the way... And this is something I became more like alarmed by as I read, did the research. The way in which society has developed quite recently, in the last 40 to 50 years in particular, has made it increasingly vulnerable. Uh, we have a lot of very complex systems out there, which our life depends upon, which are very, very brittle. They're very fragile. And then they're not able to cope, as COVID, I think, showed us, with even quite modest departures from the norm. And so events that would not have been catastrophic 100 years ago would be catastrophic were they to occur now. So for all of those reasons, 
uh, the number of possible risks and the probability of some of them, not all of them, but some of them, is going in the wrong direction. There's a lot there that I want to dig deeper into and, mm -hmm. and we'll come back to in a minute, but I'll just pick up on one thing you said there. It, it does seem to me that COVID almost proves the opposite point, um, that in a sense, things were surprisingly robust yeah. given what we went through. Now, granted, you know, the kind of pandemics you're talking about in this book are the kind that indigenous Americans got after well, the, yeah. you know, Columbus arrived, uh, or the Black Death, which killed, what, two thirds of the world population? 45%. Um, nonetheless, should the experience of COVID actually make us a little bit more optimistic of the resilience of our systems? It should make us both more optimistic and less, because I think what you can draw is two quite different conclusions. On the one hand, the way in which um, uh, prophylactic measures such as vaccines were developed on a kind of decentralised, non-government-directed basis uh, should give us cause for optimism, because that shows how uh, lots of people operating independently in research centres all over the world were able to extremely quickly uh, produce an effective prophylactic response uh, to the illness. Uh, and also, it's worth saying, uh, a lot of this was done because the government rules, which otherwise would have drawn out the process of getting vaccines accepted to about five years, were scrapped. And that, that's a lesson we should draw more widely, I think. On the other hand, uh, if you look at the impact that this relatively mild pandemic had, it was due to um, lots, all these responses that we had, notably lockdowns. Now, why did we have lockdowns? Well, the reason is quite straightforward. Lockdowns were imposed not to stop the spread of the illness, particularly, or for the life-saving reasons that they were just, it was justified by, it was to prevent the collapse of hospital systems. Hospital systems globally proved to be highly brittle. They could not cope with even a relatively minor departure from the long-run average of the number of patients coming into hospital in a given time. Now, Britain was a particularly acute case, actually, because here the NHS, for various reasons, can barely cope with a seasonal flu epidemic every winter because it has so little spare capacity. Uh, it's got better than 90% bed occupancy. So COVID showed both on the one hand how adaptable and resilient some of our systems were, but at the same time, it showed that a lot of our healthcare systems and also quite a lot of our just-in-time supply systems, supply chains, were not resilient. They, they took quite a while to recover from the impact of the shock. So it's, it's, a, it's a mixed message, basically. You can draw optimistic conclusions from it and pessimistic ones. Yeah. I mean, I think in a sense what you're talking about with the, the fragility of systems is kind of the downside of efficiency yes. in a way. So you could say if the NHS is filling 98% of its beds, it's using its resources very efficiently. Now, we know it's not true in this particular case. Um, likewise, with supply chains, very little slack. Everything has to arrive just in time. Um, but I suppose there's a challenge there for the economically minded, because isn't that precisely what we've wanted to promote as free marketeers? This is one of the big points of the book, actually. I think that the world is excessively efficient and that economists in particular, uh, we need more slack. Uh, if any of you know about the Church of the Subgenius, you'll know what I mean by that. Um, the, the point about efficiency is that economists, I think, have too many of them anyway, an idea of efficiency which is mathematically unsound because it depends upon uh, ignoring tail-end events mm. and only considering events that fall within the stand one standard deviation on either side of a mean. Now, 
suppose you are the Chinese emperor back in a, most of Chinese history. A smart Mandarin who's done a course in economics might come to you and say, look, why have we got all these huge granaries? We hardly ever have a rice harvest that's enough to fill them up. What on earth is the point of them all? Uh, or why do we have these gigantic levies and invest all this money into flood control measures uh, you know, when the chances of needing them is like you know, one in a hundred in any one year? Well, there's a very good reason why you do that. It's because every so often you do get a hundred-year flood. The Yellow River does decide to change its course, and if you don't have the flood protection measures in place, the whole of North China is going to be devastated. Well, as indeed sometimes does happen when you even win those defences. Similarly, let's say you do get a bumper harvest. You need those granaries then to store the rice. Why? Because there's also the probability of a tail-end event in the other direction where you get harvest failure, and then you need those granaries to, you know, to prevent mass starvation of peasant rebellions. So the point is, I think, that economists have tended to uh, be very bad in dealing with tail-end events. They tend to think that you have everything has a normal distribution, and you can ignore significant departures, more than one sigma, to use the technical mathematical jargon, from the average. And that's an extremely dangerous assumption. What it means is that actually you're not being efficient. You're being efficient if and only if the range of possible events does not depart too much from the long run average. And you know for a fact that every so often things are going to happen that are going to depart from the average. And that's when you find that suddenly you need that slack and you become too efficient. So I do think that economics and economic policy needs to row back on the efficiency argument. It may not, not make sense to have, let's say, 10, 15 percent more train drivers than you need. But actually, you do need that because that's to allow for things like a whole bunch of drivers suddenly going off sick at the same time and your entire timetable collapsing, mm. uh, which is what has happened. <laughs> um, so probability, which you just referred to in that answer, yeah. is one of the, the key concepts in this book, at yeah. least probability as applied to global catastrophic risks. Yes. Yeah. I would say it's probably the, and maybe this is just me, but I suspect not, the hardest part of the book to get your head yeah. around. Because it's not at all intuitive, is it, how you should think about probability when it comes to these kinds of risks. No. There's the fat tail distribution, uh, and there's also this, this kind of um, difference between thinking about risks in an individualistic way yeah. versus in a collective way. And what you're talking about here really are risks to humanity as a whole. Yes. The key thing is that global catastrophic risks are risks that affect the whole of humanity considered as a single entity, essentially. Now, until very recently, this is another reason why we should be more concerned about it now than our ancestors were, it didn't make sense to think of human beings as a single entity because the connections between different parts of the world were sufficiently limited uh, that it was very unlikely that something could happen that would affect all human beings everywhere. Now, however, we are sufficiently interconnected by trade, transport exchange, population movements, communications, all these other things, that it makes sense in many ways to think of the global population as a single entity. However, it much is divided in terms of identity, politics, and all the rest of it. Uh, there's no way in which it can act as a single entity, but it can be affected as a single entity. And this leads to, this is part of the sort of statistical way of thinking that you, you need to get your head around, which is that uh, th there's a crucial difference between risk borne by an ensemble, a random collection of people, if you will, and risk borne by a single entity, whether an individual or a group of people considered as a single entity because they're sufficiently interconnected. So th the famous example of this is one that Nassim Nicholas Taleb gives, which is that suppose you have 100 people who go to the 
um, casino and gamble. Uh, and there's 100 people who go one day, 100 people go the next day, and this goes on and on. And it's not the same 100 people every day. It's, it's changing cast. Now, in any one visit, one person is going to be bankrupted, one person is going to win a huge amount. You're going to get the whole array of results in between. This will go on and on and on. It will cycle through the whole range of distributions many, many times. And you'll be able to work out pretty quickly what the average uh, likely winnings and losses are going to be. Suppose you have one guy, call him Joe, and he goes to the casino every day. Sooner or later, he is going to get bankrupted. Uh, he, you, the, the, you know, he, some days he'll win a lot, some days he'll win a little, lose a little, but sooner or later, he's going to get completely bankrupted. Uh, and at that point, there's no further visits to the casino. The whole process stops. Uh, in the technical language of mathematics, it's a non-ergodic probability. He doesn't have the quality of ergodicity. And the, the thing is that when you think about risks that affect humanity as a whole, you're in the position of Joe. That's, that's the crucial thing to realize. You're not like the 100 people going to the casino over and over again. We'll save that for the questions. So what has economics got to say about global catastrophic risks? Um, now, you've said the ways that economics isn't really equal to this task, maybe in terms of the excessive focus on efficiency hmm. and so on. Um, but one of the key themes in this book, one of the reasons why the IAA wanted to publish it, is because you are explaining how we should think about this yeah. as economists. Well, the point is that what you let's suppose you have a global catastrophic risk and you have a rough idea of what the probability of its happening is. It, one of the arguments is it is very, and with some of them, it's extremely difficult to work out the probability, and you certainly can't know when they're going to happen. So a major argument I make in the book is that you shouldn't make predictions. Predictions are a total waste of time, really. What you should do is think of this as being a bet, if you will. Let's say you know that in any one year, there is a one in a thousand chance of a global disaster that you know, wipes out most of humanity, for sake of argument. Uh, are you prepared to take that bet? That's the kind of way to think about this in terms of, of betting. Now, however, the second thing which follows that is, well, okay, let's say you're not prepared to take the bet. You therefore think you should take certain kinds of precautions, insurance steps, uh, things you can do that might either make the thing less likely, raise it to a one in a million chance rather than a one in a thousand chance, or that would protect against it should it happen, mitigate the effects. Uh, now, the thing is that those possible steps will be costly. They're not cost-free. Nothing is costly. So what economists can help you think about is the balance of costs and benefits. What amount of money is it or resources is it worth investing to protect against a, ris a risk which, should it happen, will have catastrophic consequences? Now, um, the answer in some cases is not a lot. Mm. Uh, it's never zero, though. There are, there are some things, a kind of very minimal level of resource expenditure, which is worth making even for really trivial risks. But it's very low. In a global yeah. sense, it's nothing. But for other ones where the risk is, is uh, higher, uh, like the risk of a, a serious natural pandemic, for example, uh, a black death level pandemic or higher, or the risk of a major solar flare, mm -hmm. um, a, a Carrington event type, type solar flare, uh, then it's worth spending quite a bit because the probability is higher and therefore it's worth doing it. The other thing economics tells us is that you can use the two other things. One is 
you can use the price mechanism in various ways to work out what trade-off you're prepared to make. So let's say you think that there is a serious risk of an abrupt climate switch or you know, a catastrophic change in the Earth's climate, which could happen for natural reasons. In fact, that's more likely, actually. What amount of resources would it be worth putting in to mitigate the possible effects of such an event? And that's where you need to have a conversation, basically, about, well, OK, it means using some resources for this that you would not, you would otherwise use for something else. How far are you prepared to go? And you need a social conversation. And you can't do that unless the economists are there uh, to help out. So that's another important uh, mm. you know, feature of the, of the way economists can contribute to this. What global catastrophic risk are you most worried about? I think... There's, I think there's t there's two or three which I would put at equal level. One is the risk of a nuclear war. I think that uh, we have become seriously complacent about this. Uh, recent events perhaps have made us a bit less complacent. But if you look at the history of the Cold War, um, on an alarmingly large number of occasions, we came extremely close to having a general nuclear war between the two sides, the Soviet Union and the U.S., uh, by accident uh, or at a period of heightened tension. On one occasion during the Cuban Missile Crisis, the only reason why we didn't have it was because of an extremely brave Russian submarine officer who uh, <laughs> refused to let his commander attack uh, fire missiles on an American ship. Uh, and the thing is that, okay, you could say, well, uh, no, it didn't happen, we survived, but that's not a reason for being reassured and thinking the risk has gone away. That's like playing Russian roulette and you think, oh, I pulled the trigger 20 times and I still haven't blown my brains out. Well, you know, that is not good thinking. So nuclear war is definitely one of them. And we should be thinking much more seriously about that. Another one that I am worried about is the one I mentioned a moment ago, which is large coronal mass ejections, very large solar flares. Um, these are an example of something which is a risk now, but wasn't 300 or even 100 years ago. So back in 1859, there was a very large solar flare. Uh, and at the time, so-called Carrington event, at the time, all it did was create some really spectacular northern lights. Uh, wasn't no damage done, really, apart from a few telegraph lines burning out. But at that time, nothing relied upon electricity. There was no electrical grid. There were no electrical appliances. The best estimate that has been done by Lloyds of London is that were an event of a similar size to happen now, it would cause catastrophic grid failure across large parts of the planet, and it would burn out huge numbers of appliances. Uh, and it, they estimate that it would cost anything up to 15% of global GDP, which is a one-off hit. It's absolutely enormous. I mean, that's a disaster. Maybe not quite a catastrophic loss, but getting very close. Uh, we nearly had such an event in 2012. Uh, the sun had a flare which was the same size as the one in 1859, but it missed Earth by about 10,000 miles, which in you know cosmic terms is nothing. Uh, so you had a, we've had a high risk. Now, that, the, the mathematics works out that it's about a 0.3% chance. It's a one in 300-year event, mm -hmm. a really big flare of that kind. Uh, and there have been ones that are much, much more powerful. There was one back in the uh, 8th century, for example, that was 10 times more powerful than a Carrington event. Another one in the 13th century of similar power. So that's, that's a risk which I'm quite alarmed about. Fortunately, there are relatively simple things you can do to protect against it, which we probably should be doing anyway, uh, because they would make our power grids more resilient. If to for instance, things. hardening the grid, basically, uh, and also having a grid which is more 
decentralized so that it doesn't it can't be knocked out by the failure of a relatively small number of uh, key points in, in the grid network uh, and we should probably be looking to do this anyway i mean there are there are good reasons for doing that quite mm -hmm. apart from this so that's the second one that i'm i'm quite worried about and the third one is, is the one i sort of alluded to which is excessive systemic complexity mm. i i think that that's a um a quite a serious risk in a way that is you know well oliver letwin for example the late uh, former cabinet minister had a whole book about this uh, a couple of years ago um called apocalypse how was what his book was called how yeah uh, and uh, what for that man for five years to pick it? Anyway, well, I, I thought the book was quite good actually. And the, the point is that it's again, it's about uh, cascading systemic failure. And I think that, that that is quite a big problem, mainly because it makes a number of the other possible risks much higher than they would otherwise be. Mm -hmm. We could probably survive uh, quite a lot of the things that, uh, you know, could happen without them causing a catastrophe if it were not for the fragility of a lot of our systems. And those last two, in a way, are connected, right? Um, something that knocked out the electrical grid and then cascading systems yeah, collapse. Precise. Yeah, precisely. That is connected, yeah. I, I'm, I'm struck, and, and I want to delve into some of those issues a little bit more, but I'm struck you didn't mention AI. AI seems to be the the one that everyone talks about yes. at the moment. It's the one that the effective altruists are very concerned with. The the institutes that are studying these kind of risks seems to dwell particularly Many on AI. So. Yeah. It wasn't in your top three. No, it's not. Um, th there's two reasons why I'm uh, I'm still very concerned about it, and I'll explain why I think we should be. Um, but on the on the long, I have a kind of suspicion that it, we shouldn't be that concerned about it. Ultimately, um, one is that I am a big skeptic about the prospect of AI becoming sentient. A lot of the major risks that are associated with AI are to do with the notion that if an artificial intelligence becomes sufficiently powerful, it will acquire sentience, which means it will have a kind of will and decision-making capacity of its own, and it might well decide that it, if it's superior to human beings, that it, it should just get rid of us. Alarmingly, there are quite a lot of people in the AI sphere working on AI who think that that would be a good thing. Mm. And their argument is that um, if AI is the next stage in intelligence and is superior to human beings, well, why, why should we complain if it replaces us? We'd just be like the Dennis Sogans, you know, the casualty of evolution. Uh, I don't share that view, as you might imagine. Um, <laughs> it's hard to think the Dennis Sogans did either. Um, but the, the point is, I am actually strongly sceptical that we will have sentience, because I, I do not believe the underlying argument, which is that sentience is a purely mechanical feature of a sufficiently high level of interconnectivity and data processing capacity. Um, I think we don't really understand what self-consciousness and sentience is. It's one of those very mysterious subjects. That's one reason. The other reason is I think that at the moment the panic is due to the fact that AI is developing very, very rapidly uh, with things like ChatGPT being the poster boy for this. But I think what is also becoming apparent with that is the limitations of AI uh, and the degree to which uh, AI lacks certain kinds of human qualities of flexibility uh, and so on. However, we should be alarmed. Uh, I do have a point in the in the book where I say, well, you can think of humanity as being a bit like a herd of wildebeest. And if you're there, you are on the savannah, you see this huge herd of wildebeest, um, and uh, suddenly one of them panics, and all the ones around it will panic as well. Uh, now, the first one may have panicked because it sees a lion, but why does the wildebeest, like, you know, half a mile away on the other side of the herd also panic when it sees the first one jumping about? The lion's not going to get it. Mm. But actually, that collective panic is an, is an 
good response, which is why evolution has selected for it, because it might not be a lion. It might be a flash flood or a fire, which would wipe out the whole herd. So it makes sense to panic initially. Mm. Uh, your, so your response to a perceived risk of this kind, a systemic risk to the entire herd stroke human species, should be initially to panic. But if you think back to that herd of wildebeest, although they may stampede initially, once it sort of dawns on them that, well, no, it is just one lion, they stop doing it. So the panic phase is something that should uh, be relatively short-lived, but you, it is a good response because what you don't want to do is to be complacent uh, and think, oh, this we can ignore the risk completely. Mm. And then suddenly you find, oh, no, we shouldn't have ignored it. Uh, and that's the point where you become you become toast. It would be probably odd to have this conversation about global catastrophic risks and not talk about climate change. So mm. in the book, you say that an abrupt climate reset is by far the most pressing global do, catastrophic yeah, the risk. Moment, yeah. But you're not talking about a few degrees centigrade of, of warming here, right, over the next century. You're talking about something quite different. Yes. Well, the point is, I think a lot of the conversation about climate change, um, the people who are engaged in it on both sides don't pay enough attention to the historical climatologists, the paleoclimatologists and the historical climatologists. What you will find if you look at the history is that climate change typically does not happen in this gradual, long, drawn-out way. What you find are major climate changes which happen very, very suddenly. In fact, I mean really suddenly. The switch from the climate setting for an ice age to an interglacial like the one we're in now or vice versa typically takes less than 20 years. It takes 10 to 15 years to go from one to another. Uh, and there have been lesser magnitude switches on several points in human history. So, for example, between roughly the 1585, middle of the 1580s, to the middle of the 1590s, quite suddenly, the global climate reset, and the planet suddenly cooled down by almost one degree Celsius. And then over the next uh, 70 or 80 years, its temperature declined by another half a degree Celsius, we, we estimate roughly. Now, that was a very sudden change in a matter of a decade you went from one kind of stable climate equilibrium to another stable equilibrium, uh, which was significantly colder. And the result was much, much colder winters all across, particularly the Northern Hemisphere, which had pretty dramatic effects. I mean, the best estimate we have is that global population over that period was reduced by about 25% because of the much higher risk of harvest failures, major epidemics and the like. So the climate change can, what we need to be a bit worried about is the prospect that there could be an abrupt switch of that sort. Uh, and this is a constant possibility. Now, the question is, are we seeing one at the moment, or is one becoming more likely? Uh, the answer, the honest answer is we don't know. But that's not a bet that we should be prepared to take, in my view, because there, is, there are signs that it could be happening. There's like mixed mixed mm. information out there. Mm. Um, so the, the, there's a, a realistic chance it could happen. Now, what what we could or should do about it is, is another matter. That's where the economic thinking that I mentioned needs to come into play. Because um, one of the things that I, I sort of mentioned in the book briefly, I don't develop it fully because there's not enough space and it's a separate issue, is that I think that human activity, particularly human carbon emissions, are essentially an exacerbatory factor rather than a primary one. I think that the main thing that is driving change in the weather, if it is happening, is a whole range of other things, such as the extent of forest cover on the planet, the amount of water vapor in the planet's atmosphere, many of which are completely independent of human activity, uh, or even human activity which is generally good, such as less you know, pollution in the atmosphere. 
Uh, and it's not clear to me that carbon uh, emissions by themselves are you know, the only sole driving factor, which is the way a lot of the discussion presents them as being. Um, but on the other hand, they are, they're probably an exacerbatory factor. Now, the question is, should we, you know, should we be worried about this? Yes, I think we should be. Uh, but I don't think we can actually probably prevent such a change. Um, given the kind of scale of the processes we're talking about, uh, that's actually, I think that's rather hubristic, actually, to think human beings can. And also, when you start to do the economics of it, what you discover is that the costs of doing some kinds of things that are being proposed to head off a major climate shift are almost as costly as the climate shift would be. Yeah. So, you know, you, you might as well, you know, it's very fine. No, probably not best not to do it. So what you need to focus rather is upon um, adjustment, essentially, mm -hmm. and working out ways of dealing with the effects of this and of adjusting to it in a way that is not too disruptive and uh, allows civilization to survive the undoubted stress that such a, a switch would would lead to. I'm, I'm struck by the extent to which energy features in both yep. thinking in this book, but also you're thinking more broadly about politics mm. and economics. Yes. Um, and I wonder if you want to sort of expand on this a little bit. I know we've talked about it, but I, I mean, the fundamental thing is we don't really have a good enough replacement for fossil fuels. Yes, yeah. the, this is the argument, yes. I mean, this is a concern I actually got from reading the work of um, a major scientist, Vaclav Smil, uh, who's written several of the definitive books on this subject, notably How the World Really Works and uh, History of Energy, which are, both of which are amazing works of scholarship in my view. The point is that we do not have, despite what many people would think, anything close to an adequate replacement for fossil fuels at the moment. Uh, people talk very glibly about renewable energy and you'll get people saying nonsense like Norway produces you know, all of its energy from renewable sources. That's not true. Norway produces its electricity from renewable sources. But electricity only makes up 20 to 25% of global energy consumption. Uh, the other 75% is primarily uh, domestic heating, industrial heating, and long-distance transport. Now, you can uh, electrify um, domestic heating and therefore power that by renewables if you like, although it would be incredibly expensive and difficult to do, particularly in parts of the world like Britain, but you could just about do it if you thought it was worth it. But the other two, domestic uh, industrial heating and um, long-haul transport, there's just no substitute for oil. We cannot do, we cannot make steel or cement or fertilizer without fossil fuels. Uh, and you cannot ship goods uh, really long distance by ship or by truck or train over land without oil. The costs of doing it in any other way are simply prohibitive. And the problem, the reason why that is a problem, is not that we're running out of oil, uh, because we never will. About 60 to 70% of all the oil has ever existed is still out there. Uh, the world is full of oil, basically. We have about 60, 70 years of oil reserves now. Uh, in another 60 or 70 years, we will still have 60 or 70 years of reserves. That's how it works. However, and this is the problem, just we've had conversations about this, the 60 or 70 years of reserves that we will arrive at in like 40, 50 years time are going to require far more resources to get out and process than the reserves we have right now. And that means that, in other words, in technical economic language, the marginal cost of production is constantly going up. Uh, and that means that although the bulk of the oil in the world is highly profitable to produce at $50 a barrel or less, the last critical 10% or so that you need to run the world economy at full blast 
oil that you can only supply that with oil that is only profitable to produce now at around about $100 a barrel. Uh, and that, that problem is going to get worse. So we need to find a way, and this is one of the technologies I think we should be like putting speculative funds into, uh, a way of storing energy and compressing energy, because that is what we need to make other kinds of energy sources really competitive as proper replacement for fossil fuels. But we're not there yet. We're nowhere near it because battery technology is, is you know, nothing like good enough, not to mention requiring colossal amounts of extremely rare um, minerals and metals that mm. um, extracting of which would cause enormous damage in its own right. So one of the things with this book um, that perhaps makes me a little uneasy is you could probably read the first hundred pages. Um, and if you hadn't been paying close attention in, in the introduction, think, gosh, Steve is carving out a major new role for the state here. Um, we need the government to get on top of this thing. We need Apollo space programs and Manhattan projects. Um, and we need global government to deal with these kind of mm. global catastrophic risks. Yeah. Now, that very much isn't what you're saying. Right. But why? Well, uh, for the same reasons that I think that large-scale government of any kind of particularly global government is a bad idea anyway, uh, which is that um, political power of this kind has two crippling disabilities. The first is public choice problems. Uh, the fact that large-scale power machinery of any kind, particularly at a global level, is going to be captured by private interests who will use it to extract rents from the rest of us. Um, so that, that is one reason why you definitely don't want to go down that road if you can avoid it. The other is the knowledge problem. Uh, you know, essentially, all of, all of human knowledge is mainly dispersed and tacit. It's scattered all amongst nine billion people. And a lot of it is purely local and it's tacit. It's not capable of being written down in either words or numbers, which means that governments, no matter how powerful, cannot capture it. And therefore, you need decentralized mechanisms like markets to deal with it. Now, that means, therefore, I think that the, the solution to this, as with any other problem, is to rely upon decentralized social mechanisms, uh, decentralized experimental networks, not necessarily profit-making markets. I, I'm a big fan of the kind of approach taken by the late Eleanor Ostrom and her also late husband, Vincent, which is to emphasize voluntary cooperation, uh, non-market mechanisms for addressing social problems and dealing with resource problems. Uh, but still non-governmental ones, uh, ones that are bottom-up and decentralised and formed by voluntary cooperation rather than top-down controls. Plus also, the problem with something like an Apollo project, um, this is another little bugbear of mine, I personally think the Apollo project was a disaster for space exploration. And that had we not had the... It had put back space exploration by about 20 to 30 years. Why? Because the Apollo project, like all government projects, put all its eggs in one basket. It had a single goal, getting a man to the moon and back, as Kennedy said, and therefore all it did was focus on one way of getting into orbit and then to the moon, which was throw away step rockets, basically. Uh, and all of the other ways of getting into orbit, um, air-breathing space planes and things of that sort, which the US Air Force had been working on with the X-Planes program, they were thrown by the wayside. And this is another huge problem with um, allowing government or the political process to try and resolve problems by being responsible for major innovations. The Mariana Mazzucato approach was in her book on project government. Uh, it's because almost by the logic and nature of the beast, you're going to get a focus on just one option. And this means that 
all the others will be ignored. And that's not what you want. What you want is the hundred school of thoughts contending, you know, to quote Mao. Uh, and the, basically, most of them will fail. You want as many failures as possible, because it's only through failures that you work out what isn't going to work. And you're far better off having like a hundred little groups each trying their own thing. Uh, it's much more likely that A, you will work out quickly which isn't going to do the job, and B, you'll get the two or three that do do it, and then people can copy it. Uh, and that's the way progress and innovation happens. So I'm definitely not saying that we the logic of global catastrophic risks is that we need a global government. Quite the contrary, uh, is that actually we need decentralized innovation uh, through market mechanisms and other voluntary social mechanisms more than ever. I would say, though, there are a number of like limited areas where I think because of various collective action problems, you probably do need government. So very reluctantly, but I do think you should at least like have a stab at it. One of them is banning certain kinds of scientific research. Um, there is one which I think we should definitely ban, uh, which is so-called gain-of-function experiments on pathogens, uh, which is where you take viruses in particular, or sometimes bacteria, and you deliberately make them more virulent. Now, the reason for doing this is supposedly uh, so that you can then work out better how to combat them. But this is an insanely high risk, because, because what is very likely to happen very high probability is that these engineered pathogens will escape from the lab uh, and then you've got a real problem on your hands so that's a kind of experimentation which i think we should make a serious attempt at, uh, at banning on a global basis and of course there's an obvious backstory with covid for that which i don't need to go into uh, there are a number of others i am sort of persuaded that despite my own relatively relaxed state about ai that we that we probably should have a short pause in AI research, mm -hmm. uh, probably about a year to 18 months. I don't think you could get one to stick for longer than that, simply so that we can try and work out what is likely to happen and also what the major problems are that we really need to address, which involves the engineers actually talking to, of all people, the philosophers, because that's really the question you need. It's, it's philosophy questions you need to think about there in terms of how you program AI. And also the rest of us to think about how to use it uh, and whether we do want to use it uh, in all the possible uses that it might have. So I think a pause there would be quite useful. And that is an area where you need political intervention. Um, and also you might want to use things like the tax mechanism uh, sure. to establish uh, cost trade-offs and things of that sort. Well, you, you threw something in right at the end on AI that I didn't agree with, but uh, it's time to go to the audience for questions and I can keep mine up my sleeve. So uh, Tom Burrows first. Is that uh, Tom Burroughs? Um, you spoke a few times about insurance. You gave examples of the Lloyds of London. There is actually in a market in um, in what are called catastrophe bonds, yeah. known for short as cat bonds. Sounds quite funky. Um, how much have you learned from just talking to or observing the insurance market in terms of trying to get a purchase on these issues? Because clearly, there are people who are very clever at trying to price catastrophe. The question that occurs to me, though, that if we have a global catastrophe of the sort you're talking about, who gets this insurance payout? Yes. I mean, what happens unless you're living on a space colony? How do you actually get remunerated if there is a global catastrophe? Yeah, this is the problem. Um, the, the principle of insurance is obviously the one that you need to go to when thinking about how to deal with risks. And also, it's something that applies at an individual level. So the chances that your house will be completely destroyed and need to be rebuilt from the foundations up is extremely low. 
and yet most people still have house rebuilding insurance. Uh, it makes sense to do this because even though it's a low probability event, the consequences will be absolutely disastrous. So the question is, though, how do you apply that model to a global catastrophe where uh, you know, it's not clear who, the, who is going to make the payment? That's the problem. There will still be survivors who will maybe have had the insurance policy and say, I want to, I want to you know, claim the benefit. The problem is who's going to pay them? <laughs> That's the difficulty. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the, the question is, in other words, the payout uh, in the event of a catastrophe would have to be something other than you know, cash redemption or something. However, what the insurance markets can do is um, provide sort of information about what the relative cost might be of protecting against risks up to the level of a global catastrophe. In other words, the kind of category of risks which are just below that level. Uh, and that's very useful. The other thing I have talked about, though, which is related to that, is betting markets. One of the arguments of the book is that we should think in terms of bets, not forecasts. And one of the best ways of establishing what the probability of an event is, is the amount of money people are prepared to wager on its happening. Now, again, you might say, well, okay, who's going to pay out in the event of it? But you'd be amazed. People will bet on all kinds of strange stuff like that. Um, and so the, the betting markets where there's a sufficient liquidity, sufficient amount of money changing hands, uh, and where people have exposure to loss if they get it wrong, are actually probably the best way we have of establishing probability. Uh, they're certainly better, way better than expert predictions. So if you want to know what the likely outcome of the next election, for example, is, you do not bother going to sophologists. You should go to politicalbetting.com and see what the, the political punters on there think the most likely odds are. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I agree completely with Brian. Uh, by the way, I mean, I, I, there's a moral argument behind this too, which is words are cheap. Uh, if people are prepared to put their money where their mouth is and take a bet and accept one end of a bet, the odds that you're prepared to offer them, that shows you they're serious about what they're saying. It's amazing the number of people who suddenly back down from confident opinions when they're asked to bet on them. A uh, gentleman on the aisle just there. Uh, thank you for this um, sort of sharing your thoughts with us. I'm just wondering if you could clarify what a global uh, catastrophic event for civilization. I, I can understand, I think it's obvious what uh, an extinction, extinction event is. But just if you could maybe clarify or, or sort of by way of examples. Okay. Yeah. Um, yes. I mean, for example, uh, an asteroid, some takes an extinction level event. Uh, these are obviously very extreme events. So something like an asteroid striking the planet, that would do to us what a similar event did to the dinosaurs, the Chicks Club event, uh, or, or a super volcano eruption, which, as I say, very nearly did wipe out the entire human species. Another possibility would be a truly lethal pandemic. Now, um, Tom mentioned the epidemics that took place in the New World after the Europeans arrived, after Columbus came there. Those epidemics, in the space of 100 years, wiped out 90 to 95% of the indigenous population of the two American continents. It took about 100 years for the main killer, which was smallpox, to reach what is now Canada from um, Hispaniola and Mexico. Uh, now, the thing is that that was because the Native Americans had no resistance to all these illnesses, measles, but particularly smallpox. Uh, if something like that were to happen, again, it would be a very low probability event, but yeah, that would be an extinction-level event. Because if, if the global population is reduced by that amount, certainly civilization would collapse. Uh, but also, uh, it's very likely that, you know, 
other things might wipe the rest of that surviving 5% out. One other quick thing about that, though. A, a civilizational collapse is, is much more likely. There are lots of things that could cause a civilizational collapse, uh, such as a nuclear war, for example, or a major solar flare, or a really serious pandemic of the Black Death level, which would, you know, about half the global population being killed. Uh, the point is that the disruption uh, would almost certainly put global high-tech civilization under such stress that it would not survive. Now, one of the reasons why I think we should be alarmed now, but our, gra Oops, sorry, our grandchildren should not be alarmed uh, if technological progress continues, is that right now, if global technological civilization collapses, it will be very, very difficult to reconstruct it because all of the high-grade ore, easily accessible oil, high-grade resources have been used up. Now, as long as you have lots of energy and to you know, process and access those low-grade resources, you're fine. But by definition, mm -hmm. in a post-industrial society, you will not have it. So until our technology has developed sufficiently, that we are not in that vulnerable situation, which I think will take about 100 years, roughly. We are in an unusual window of vulnerability. So I think the chances of a civilizational collapse being irreversible are higher now than they were either two or 300 years ago or will be in a hundred years time. We're in a kind of unusual window of vulnerability, in other words. Um, Felix, I know you had your hand up. Hey, uh, thank you. Uh, you. I think you mentioned, I don't know if this is a direct quote, that the um, COVID pandemic wasn't a black swan. And most of the yeah. events you've talked about are sort of events that have happened in the past, we have some data on. Is there anything on the book or, or in your thoughts about what to do with truly black swan events? Unknown black swan. Uh, the, the, there is one paragraph. Uh, the, the point. The point about a black <laughs> swan paragraph. The point about a black swan event, by definition, is that it's unknowable because it's something that has never happened before or within living memory, and therefore it's totally unexpected. And it's completely unknowable, and so by definition, there are always going to be things that might happen. We have no idea what they might be. Uh, the only thing you can do about that is to have what I describe as the kind of minimal protection against global catastrophe, which is having things like the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, where you store seeds from lots and lots of plants and crops so that they would survive even an asteroid impact, that kind of thing. Uh, and also other ways of preserving knowledge and technology and techniques so that they would survive it. But that's all you can do, because you can't, by definition, you cannot prepare for a totally unforeseeable event. Uh, Linda. Thanks for the question with Rissy Cock. We said she didn't turn the thought to stir on it. I want to push back a little on your idea that we would pause AI. I mean, just in the newspaper this week, uh, there was the fact that they tested successfully a synthetic antibiotic, which is um, useful against MRSA and um, different kinds of um, resistant bacteria. And, you know, my understanding is that by using AI, you can try and fail, try and fail, try and fail, and come up with novel solutions. And so it seems like putting a pause on AI for a year is, you know, a huge opportunity cost because we might come up with all sorts of medical solutions, particularly, but other kinds of solutions that could save potentially thousands and thousands of lives. Uh, the that general argument is completely correct, and I, I do address it in the book. There are certain technologies like AI, another one which I'll talk about is global modification through CRISPR and other things like that, where 
the benefits are so great that there's, if you think about stopping the technology completely, uh, Nassim Nicholas Salah, for example, thinks we should completely ban genetic modification. Uh, the problem is that you would lose or forego such an enormous range of spectacular benefits that you probably would make the judgment that it's still worth accepting the risk. You just try to hedge around it in some ways. And I think the same is true of AI, which is why I would not do what Eliezer Yudkowsky wants, which is to completely ban AI and never have it. However, I think that with an eight, a one-year or 18-month pause, yes, there would be the cost you mentioned. But the point is that the things that would have happened in that 18-month period, they will still happen. It's just that there is a delay. Now, sure, that delay does bring a cost, which means that some people might die in that 18 months who would otherwise have lived. Uh, but I think that the cost there is relatively contained. And I think it probably is worth, given the potential downside risk, uh, just having this pause in order to do it. But it would be strictly time-limited uh, and for a short time partly for that reason that you precisely said, that any, any longer and you are going to actually have really significant uh, downside cost to that, but also because I don't think you'd get it to stick for more than 18 months. I think, and it would be, a, it would be quite a big ask to get it to stick even then. I think it's worth trying, uh, but I'm not sure that, um, uh, you know, we would get it, but it's, I think it's still worth doing it, but only for that kind of limited time, for that reason that you've just said. Uh, hand just there, talk. Oh, good evening. Thank you very much for laying your thoughts on uh, and your argumentation for future catastrophes. Uh, one thing I was thinking about is earthquakes. Uh, obviously, last year in uh, Syria and Turkey, there was a devastating one, mm. and uh, tsunamis are usually caused by high-magnitude earthquakes. Uh, it's an area where I don't think we know much about, we can't predict them, and when they happen, they are generally quite catastrophic. So yeah. where does... the that all that fit in in your book and in your thinking and and what can actually be done to to sort of you can't stop it so do you rebuild yeah what happens then okay um earthquakes are not a global catastrophic risk because although they're catastrophic they're localized they're not global um, unless you have the kind of scenario that the late john christopher had in his science fiction novel wrinkle in the skin where you have earthquakes all over the entire planet simultaneously uh it's not a global risk um so they're an example of a localized catastrophic risk or potentially catastrophic risk. Uh, what can you do about it? Well, despite the best efforts of the seismologists, it's almost impossible to predict. Uh, very difficult to predict and extremely difficult to predict exactly how big it will be. That, that's the real problem because the bulk of the damage, earthquakes are an example of uh, uh, an event with a fact tail distribution. The great majority of the damage done by earthquakes is done by the very small minority of really, really big ones. You know, six point something above on the Richter scale. Uh, what can you do about it? The answer is um, you can't really. What you can do is have mitigating things in. You can help buildings be designed if you know they're in a high earthquake risk zone, like the Ring of Fire, so that they're more earthquake resilient. Uh, worth saying that in Japan, historically, they used to have extremely fragile buildings because you know, they wouldn't kill people when they fell down. Uh, now they have their buildings are designed to sway and rock, and it takes a really, really big earthquake. Uh, to, to knock one of them down. So an earthquake in Japan now that would have killed a huge number of people 100 years ago kills far less now. So that's the kind of thing you can do. In other words, you can just mitigate the effects. But the predictability problem is I don't think it'll ever be resolved. I mean, the geologists are very pessimistic about doing anything about them. I have had the start to wrap up sign from the back of the room, but just get a sense of how many hands uh, people still with burning questions. Um, 
Yeah, okay. So um, if we could just take a few together, um, the three of you at the front, and we'll try and keep them quite short, please, if that's all right. Uh, the lady in the front first, please. Uh, does, does this just... Does this um, justify governance? Because this could sit, um, things like this ever be dealt with in an anarchic society, or does it justify having a, a government? Uh, okay. And the behind you, yes. Do you feel this is more of a religious argument? It's like catastrophism. The world is getting better, and free market capitalism with human ingenuity will make it better. Mm. I'm old enough to remember the Y2K catastrophe. That's <laughs> nonsense. And really, I mean, I slightly against this, you know. If you are happy and work hard and with freedom, things are, there is no disaster coming. Right. Well, you've talked a lot today about a nuclear war. A little earlier this week, Putin's deputy said that if Russia was pushed back to the waters they had with Ukraine at the time of the collapse of the USSR, Russia would be prepared to attack Germany. London and yeah. America. So why then are the NATO countries not doing more to prepare for that by increasing the amount to 2% of GDP? Why, why does no. an American president have to, well, well, maybe the next American president, have to say anything for you said? And then that other thing about COVID, um, you said it might happen, it might not happen, there's nothing at all we can do to prepare. But did we, did we not learn more from the last COVID pandemic so we can prepare. Yes, I do think that. Three, yeah. three, three good questions. Three good questions. Okay. Grant's um, the first one. Uh, yes, I think it does. I think it does, this is one of the kind of things that means you, you do need government. I'm not an anarchist. Uh, indeed. Uh, I'm not an anarchist. And the one I do believe that actually one of the few pure public goods uh, goods which I think genuinely can only be provided on a by government is public health protection. Uh, I mean, national defence, which most people quote, has been provided privately historically. Uh, but public health protection, not. And I think the protection against major natural disasters, which I would put under that rubric, Yellow River flooding in northern China, for example, is one of the things that does require coercive collective action. So it's one of the, it is a justification for government, but a very limited one, I have to say. And it doesn't justify the kind of things that uh, Nick Bostrom, God bless him, wants us to do, which is to have a kind of global thought control system to prevent harmful innovation. Second question, that's conflate. I, I agree with you completely. Um, I'm not a catastrophist. I'm an optimist. Um, but this is a different kind of question. The question is not, is the world generally getting better? Because I think it is. The world is better. It's a better time to be alive now than it has ever been in the whole of human history. And if current trends continue, this will continue to, it will continue to get better. So I'm not denying that. And I'm not one of these people who thinks that the world is uh, going to go to go, going to the dogs or that it's inevitably going to go to hell. What I'm saying is there are actual possible events that could happen that would uh, completely blow things up. And this is always true. Let's say your personal life is going brilliant. Everything is getting better. You're very, very happy. Things are going to get better. Uh, I'm not saying you should think, oh, my God, you know, my life is going to go to hell. I'm going to you know, lose everything. What I'm saying is there could be something happen to you, a road traffic accident or something, that would end it all. And, um, you know, you need to think about that. That's, that's what I'm saying, in other words. So this is not a kind of argument for a kind of general decline. It's an argument that there are certain kind of risky events out there. 
that you need to think about. That's the other one. Well, well, good questions, both of them. I mean, in terms of in terms of Ukraine, that's a whole separate issue about what 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 is going on here. I think what the war in Ukraine. I mean, I have my own views about the foreign policy of uh, the West since two thousand eight and how now what's going on with the war in Ukraine. But the point is, I think that um, we. After the end of the Cold War, we became very relaxed about the threat of nuclear war because we thought that great power confrontations were a thing of the past or that the United States was a kind of paramount power that didn't have a serious systemic rival. I don't think that was ever true, and it's certainly not true now. So we need to be thinking about it. You're quite right. Why aren't governments not, not thinking more seriously about this? On the other one, I actually don't think... I mean, I think... A pandemic, I, I would say the chance of a pandemic in the next 10 years is close to 100% because it was the COVID one was the fifth one in my lifetime. Uh, since I was born in 1955, we have had five pandemics. They're roughly 10-year events. Well, they're about 12-and-a-half-year events. But, the, but the, um, the, short, the duration is getting shorter. The risk is getting higher for various reasons. Uh, have we learned a few things? Well, yeah, I think we have actually, although the COVID inquiry doesn't seem to be very interested in discovering what we should learn from past experience, more like who to blame. Um, but leave that to one side. I think we have learned, for example, that extensive lockdowns, which uh, I think at least the first one was necessary because of the extreme strain the hospital system was under, uh, are not the way to go. Uh, and I think also we have discovered that uh, a whole lot of therapeutic prophylactic measures like face masks and so on which were widely pushed were you know not at all effective as indeed the who said before the whole thing started on the other hand we did learn some other things one of them was and this is something that's in the book is that the one measure that probably would have stopped it had the chinese government not been so bloody deceptive would have been a ban on international air travel in the far east and other parts of the world as soon as you hear that a new epidemic illness has broken out uh, stopping long-haul international air travel is the best thing you can do to try and stop it spreading globally uh, far cheaper to have to pay out to a bunch of distressed airlines than to have all the costs that came with what we did actually do in response to the pandemic as it happens in the event of covid i think by the time we did become aware of it uh, it was too late i think it had already gotten out i i apparently i actually flew back from singapore uh, on the flight that brought patient zero back to Europe, uh, it sort of turns, it sort of, it sort of turns out. Uh, this was a chap who'd been in Wuhan, who then um, flew out to Singapore and he caught a flight back to Europe via Istanbul. And then, as soon as he got back into London, he took another flight to a ski resort in Austria for a ski holiday. And he was the patient who, from that ski resort, it spread all over Europe. Uh, so you know, but the point is, it had already gotten out by then. Uh, and I, I think that's that's the big lesson we should have learned from from that event. So yes, obviously we can learn. You know, if we do have a near catastrophic event, a warning shot, as it says in the book, that's what we should do. We should find out about how to act in ways that are uh, effective and don't do too much damage.